0: Human Kinesome Project podcast takes us down many trails and has a multitude of influences ranging from the scientific to physical literacy formed from the foundations of emotional and cognitive behaviors. When and where movement behaviors begin in life is foundational and a change agent in this domain for young women is Molly Herford. Molly is a journalist in love with cycling, running, and nutrition. When she's not outside, she's writing about being outside and the healthy habits of athletes. Molly's research includes interviewing world-class athletes and scientists for the Consummate Athlete podcast. She's the author of multiple books and writes regularly for publications including Bicycling Magazine, Outside, and Nylon. Molly will be the first to admit she's obsessed with getting people, especially women, psyched on adventure and being outside. Her recent project, Shred Girls, is a young adult fiction series and an online community focused on getting girls excited about bikes. Oh, and she also walks her talk. Molly is a former Ironman triathlete currently focusing on an ultra run. And we'll touch on that in this episode. Well, Molly, it is awesome to have you on the Human Kinosome Project podcast. Welcome. Welcome to our show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I am holding something near and dear to my heart that was just given to me. Shred Girls, tell us a little bit about this book, Jen's Bumpy Ride. And I love what's written on the back of this book. It states, for our listeners, in the third Shred Girls adventure, ultra-perfectionist Jen has to make a big decision. Should she stick with the Shred Girls or join the team that promises to make her faster? Aren't we all in that situation at some point in time in our lives?
1: A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically every, uh, every story that's happened to the Shred Girls has been... You know, something that I've struggled with in my life and I know every girl is gonna come to a point where that's that's a thing for her. Um so the the Shred Girls series to to back up I guess is um, my version of, um, I always say it's it's like the babysitter's club books, yeah. but with bikes instead of babysitting. Um, and the reason I ended up writing them was that I realized there's these alarming statistics about girls mm. in cycling, where it's, mm. I think it's like 85% of girls drop out of cycling between the ages of like nine and 12 years old.
0: Wow, and it's okay. about,
1: it's about that same amount the drop out of just organized sport in general. Yeah. Um, because they, they just don't feel like Like they are athletes, you know, quote unquote here. Mm. Um, They, you know, feel like they have to fit into this other box of like, oh, in my case, when I was younger, it was like, oh, I'm a bookworm. So therefore I don't play sports or, you know, Mm. oh, I'm, you know, I'm a dancer. So I can't possibly go outside and, you know, be shredding around on a mountain bike. Like that doesn't make sense with my current identity as this thing. Uh, We get very boxed into these little identities.
0: Yeah. So being a girl dad, is that... Like, my my daughter's grown now and in her 20s, but I remember that period in time for her, it was the identity kind of struggle. You know, what am am I attaching to? What am I associating to? Do you think that's where a lot of that decision-making or shifts away from sport comes from? Is it a peer-based pressure primarily, or is it just societal pressure in generally because we're not seeing enough female athletes on TV?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely more of the latter. And I've had a conversation with a couple different sports psychologists about this, and we've yeah. kind of come to the conclusion that it's rarely peer pressure, but it's this internalized version of peer pressure where uh, we have it yeah. in our heads that our friends aren't gonna you know, like us anymore or like think we're cool if we do this thing that isn't in line with what they're doing. But realistically, if you actually think about it from the perspective as a, as an adult looking back, like my friends wouldn't have cared if I kept riding a bike, right. like they either just wouldn't have cared or they would have thought it yeah. was cool. But at the time in my head, I definitively thought like, no, I need to be, I'm a bookworm. So therefore I'm going to hang out in the library. I'm going to hang out in my room reading. I'm absolutely not going to go outside and like yeah. play soccer. That doesn't make right. sense with who I am. Right. Uh, and you know, I, I realized this is not just me. This is every girl has this. Um, and similarly, if you're the sporty girl, you also, like, then don't really have the license to be the bookworm and the nerd. So right. um, that's kind of where Shred Girls sort of came as, like, the, the cross between the two things. Um, you know, hopefully bringing bikes to the yeah. the bookworms like myself and hopefully bringing books to the girls that are really into to bikes and into, into playing outside and doing sports and stuff, but maybe aren't really big readers. And I've heard from parents yeah. that it's worked in both directions
0: so that's very cool
1: mission accomplished i guess yeah that's got to be so
0: (laughs) validating for you right as an author and uh, given your arc and trajectory through sports itself which i want to dive into as well but given that i mean it's got to be so gratifying when a parent comes up to you and says hey you've made a difference
1: it is the nicest thing in the entire universe to, yeah, get emails from parents and occasionally get, like, actual letters from girls or, you know, be at Mm. cycling events and have girls come up to me with their books or with their Shred Girls t-shirts on. It, like, it makes me kind of, like, burst into tears every time. I'm just so excited
0: about it. So we'll let our um, producer of the podcast here, Tyler Frazier, we'll let him know, that's the next thing I need. I need a Shred Girls t-shirt, but I hope they come in my size. That's the only problem. They absolutely (laughs) do. Everyone (laughs) can be. Uh, Everyone can be a Shred Girl supporter Fantastic So (laughs) in closing on that discussion Social media, do you find that as a Multiple in the effect Of that narrowing Of identity into a specific channel And do you think therefore If that is kind of A tool that is compartmentalizing Role identity Could it be used to flip the model Could we do something in social media To really accelerate More girls in sport
1: yeah. Yeah. It's definitely that double-edged sword of, mm. you know, the girls you follow are going to be the, the girls you're trying to emulate and and everything. But at the same time, we're also seeing so many girls on bikes and in sport mm. that are coming to social media. So finally, girls are not sort of stuck relying on, you know, when I was younger, it was Seventeen Magazine and Elle Girl and, you know, Web 1.0 uh, mm. to, <laughs> to date myself a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. You just didn't have that. I, I think when I was when I was in that 12, 13 year old age, like you couldn't even upload pictures to the internet or like find pictures of like young women on the internet or like read anything about sports. Um, So I think now at least if a girl wants to seek those out, there are so many out there that are amazing and there are awesome young girls that are like their, their parents actually run their social media for them, but they're Mm. out like, you know, posting pictures from BMX tracks and doing all these cool tricks on bikes and stuff. Um, and you know, the Olympics just brought in BMX Mm. for women, which was so cool to watch. Um, so I think we are getting to see more and more, girls in sport, which has been amazing. And I think social media amplifies it as long as you're looking for it. But it's not really getting in front of the the girls that aren't looking for it yet. So right. that's that's where we need to be working here.
0: Right. So tell us a little bit more about your transition from bookworm to athlete. Right. And And and, you know, that kind of crossover. Was there an inspiration? Was there a catalyst? Was there something that drove that for you personally?
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's like a long and short story. I mean, the the mm. short version of it is I'm a, a Type A personality who got to college and suddenly didn't really feel very good in her body because it turns mm. out uh, drinking Mountain Dew and eating bagels all day is not really like the the way to feel like a productive um, healthy human being. So I was you know starting college as a girl who couldn't run a mile and. You know, had never been mm. in a weight room or anything, and I was like, okay, I guess I should start working out. That seems to be a thing. And my mm. RA on my floor, uh, my freshman year, happened to do Ironman triathlons. Oh, wow. So, yeah, my I remembered that my dad had done triathlons back in the 80s before I was born. Uh, you know, back when they were still very like, no one really did them. You did them yeah. in a speedo and like, you know, you had the the weird aero bars kind of like taped onto <laughs> your bike and just just. The most old school kind of racing you could possibly imagine, um Dad had done that, so I remembered seeing pictures of it, so when my you know r a is walking in with his fancy time trial bike and he's talking about Iron Man, I was like, Well, I guess I'm gonna do an Iron Man, wow, so <laughs>
0: Wow. I mean, I, that's like just seeing somebody with a bike and saying, I think I'm going to do an Ironman. Like I walk around the Kinetics offices and I look at our marathon runners and our distance runners and yeah, I'm not so inspired, but um, yeah, that's a that's leap. <laughs>
1: it it really was so yeah i went from not being able to run a mile to by the time I, so that was when i was 18 and by the time i was yeah. 23 i did my my first iron man i'd done my first triathlon like years before that got heavily into the cycling side of it because i mm. just the rutgers cycling team um at my school was just amazing the most supportive yeah. guys in the entire universe Luckily for me, they didn't have a girl on their team for cyclocross at the time. So they were like, yeah. here's a bike. We need you to race because we need a girl on our team for points. Um, wow. And yeah, I was yeah. that girl. So uh, they kind of bullied me into it. Turned out I loved it. And uh <laughs> Yeah, the 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 rest is sort of history, and then I shifted wow. from yeah triathlon and cycling into the more running side of it because I tend to actually enjoy that. While biking is sort of my passion, as far as you know what mm. I talk about in Shred Girls and my writing mm. and stuff, running is really what I I genuinely love doing right
0: now. Do you find that with that Type A personality and being intellectually curious that when you hit a modality like triathlon, right? So three different sports. Do you find yourself in a deep dive in one segment for a period of time and then kind of getting to a point of mastery before you move into that next segment? Or are they kind of very gray all the time?
1: Ooh, that's actually a great question. It's funny because when I got into triathlon, I actually didn't really think about about it as three separate sports. And maybe mm. it's because I came into it, not really swimming, not really biking and not really running. So right. I came into it as this just, like, entry point of I'm going to triathlete.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it never
1: occurred to me that I would work on my swimming first and get that down and mm-hmm. then go to biking and then get a running. I was just always kind of tra- doing all three of them and, and yeah. studying triathlon as a whole, not as three sports that you combine. And I think that's why I actually had, like, some decent success in it, it was because I, I yeah. didn't really look at it as three separate sports. I looked at it as just kind of this one giant sport. <laughs> okay
0: so of those three sports you could only have one which one is it going to be oh no yeah (laughs) pressure on you now molly
1: oh that's hard um at this point in time, well, I guess at this point in time, I kind of have to say running on the grounds of that's what I uh, am currently signed up for as far as races go. So right. uh, it'd be a little disappointing for me to jettison a ton of training and uh, give yeah. it all up. So <laughs> it. running, okay. it is
0: awesome. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, yeah, the the triathletes that I've been in and around, and one that I did a little bit of work with, it was always that they felt like they had a natural kind of skill set or body type or frame or physiology that push them towards one of those areas being their specialty that was always something we tended to look at but even as we talk about it here at kinetics when we're measuring kind of foot ground interaction and we're looking at things like cycling power which is pretty well known and pretty well measured but running power isn't as much right because it's being difficult to get that data set in the real world so When we're looking at sports in general, we're trying to understand the dynamic between shifts in what an individual can do within different domains in sports. So that's always, you know, a question I like to dive into and and ask, you know, if you felt that there was um, if you had a physiological or biomechanical advantage in any one of those three. Ooh, that's
1: a really interesting. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And I'm I'm so excited about run power and mm. and how especially as a cyclist who really, you know, lives and dies by power on the bike, it's going to be really yeah. neat to see how that translates to running. So I'm I'm super excited for that. Um, I would say, actually, physiologically, I am not really built for any of those things. I was probably built to be like an Olympic bodybuilder, um, if we're being totally honest about wow. it. Yeah, I okay. was like the—I was the kid who, you know, despite being the bookworm when I was eight years old, could do the pull-ups during the presidential physical fitness test in the states. Yeah. Um, and I've just always been a very muscly kid. It was. You know, actually, I write about it in Shred Girls, like that's a difficult thing for a young girl to be growing up in our our society. So, you know, that's something that I've had to come to terms with. And that's something that uh, the girls in the book have to come to terms with as well. Um, So, yeah, I would say if anything, uh, I was not really meant to be an endurance athlete at all. I was definitely meant to be like maybe CrossFit Games or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) but I've, uh, I've wrangled myself into being a a pretty decent uh, trail runner, I guess. So I actually do think that uh, being muscular as a trail runner is a huge benefit because Mm. trail running is actually much more explosive power wise. You're, you're doing a lot of weird moves, more dynamic stuff. Um, You do need more muscle to, you know, lift yourself up and over things. Um, And I think it's, it's much more protective. A lot of the, the smaller endurance athletes I know end up with stress fractures and yeah. you know all of these tears and stuff and i do think I'm, I'm a little more protected because i'm a bit more muscular than your average
0: endurance runner <laughs> let's talk a little bit about endurance because to me it's um the more i tap into the minds of endurance athletes the more i realize that that is where the endurance kind of starts It's like believing that you can go further and push yourself a little bit further. And we actually had a podcast guest on a little while back, Alex Hutchinson, who is the author of the book Endurer. And brilliant book if you've read it. Um, And uh, he talked a lot about this central governor theory around, you know, it's, you know, essentially if you believe you can do this and get through that barrier, then it's going to happen. And he referred a lot to... Um, like running the, like Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile. You know, it was like forever that somebody broke that, broke that timeline and then immediately like within the months following another six people broke it because they realized it could be done. When we talk about endurance, I like to think that it's psychology that leads physiology. Have you found as you've kind of gone through as an athlete and increased distances and increased that push through um, whether it's swimming, cycling or, or running, that there's been a mental kind of point in time that you've had to do something mentally to push yourself through or did it kind of come innately or did it kind of creep up on you by surprise and you thought, wow, I can go that extra, extra mile.
1: Yeah, I think I've probably always had the mindset of, you know, unless I'm crawling, I'm probably going to get to the finish line. Um, right. And I I think part of that's if you if you're into Ironman at all and you were into Ironman back in the 80s you definitely have heard of Julie Moss she's oh, sort yeah. of like the most famous triathlete uh, triathlete story you can talk about where she was yeah. you know right at the finish and collapsed dramatically I had to like crawl across the finish line and that was sort of my like the only female triathlete I knew when I first got into the sport so I think in the back of my brain there's always been this like you're you're gonna crawl across the finish line if you have to. Mentality, for sure. Um, So, yeah, I mean, Julie Moss was just one of my absolute heroes. And, I mean, for me, her mental uh, fortitude, we'll call it her mental strength, just really showed what was possible. And it's funny, I remember one of the first articles I ever read about triathlon was a woman who was writing that during a tough workout, she would just remind herself that she'd done an Ironman. So Mm -hmm. almost no matter what the workout was that day. She did Iron Man. She can get through this, you know, one more mile, two more miles. And even though I read that maybe 15 years ago now, it sticks with me literally every time I'm out on a workout and don't feel like doing it. Uh, so yeah, I would say most of it is, uh, is probably mental over physical. Um, also, I have a lot of very fast friends that really love long distances. Wow. Um, oh. So frankly, like having them, you know, kind of blazing trails ahead of me, um, my my good friend just set uh, the women's and men's overall FKT um, fastest known time on the Bruce trail here, a 900 kilometer stretch that she did in nine days. Um, And we crewed for her. So we got to see exactly what that looked like every day and, you know, know all that. So by the end of that, in my brain, I'm just like, of course I can run a hundred miler. If she can do 900 kilometers in nine days, of course I can run a hundred miles, no problem. Uh, well, which let's, is... let's
0: talk about that because <laughs> you've got a hundred mile event coming up from what I understand. So like, so yeah, so she can do 900, which says, yeah, look, I can do a hundred. That's going to be easy. That kind of those mental boundaries of there I can, well, it's not going to be easy. I can get to there. Right. <laughs> but how do you go about, What's your training program now for that, and how long, um, how much time are you giving yourself, and what does that kind of load variability look like week in, week out, what's the planning?
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this as I was kind of getting ready to do this podcast because I assumed mm. that at some point this question would come up. And <laughs> when uh, when I signed up for the 100 miler back in September, what I realized was I didn't have to shift my training all that much. Like my coach and I didn't have to mm. do a ton to change my training because we'd already over the past three years been working on Slowly building up my base and my volume, and like adding more and more hard efforts, and adding more trails, and adding you know a mile or two onto my long runs. I did a hundred kilometer trail run back in May, and that was sort of my almost we'll call it prep for for this being the the you know eventual goal. And Mm. so when we decided that this was the race I was going to do, that February twelfth was going to be the day I was going to do a hundred miler it's not like we had to suddenly like, okay, let's ramp up the training by, you know, 80% or let's start adding these huge miles. It's really been this little tiny incremental, like, okay, instead of doing eight mile easy runs on Tuesdays and Thursdays, now they're 10 miles. Mm. Um, So, you know, an extra 15, 20 minutes of my day, Um, you know, interval workouts on Wednesdays are now more in like 11 to 12 mile range instead of, like 10 mile range. Uh, and the long runs, obviously, you know, they've increased on the weekends, but it's not like I'm going out and doing, you know, 60 milers yeah. or something on the weekends. Yeah, no. And I,
0: I think for our listeners too, I think that's a great way to kind of package future training is to look at it. Just like you said, it's an extra 15 to 20 minutes out of my day on top of what's been normalized, right? So all of a sudden, it's not like you've got you're not standing at the base at, at mile zero going, okay, I've got 100 miles ahead of me. Um, no, I've got today, I've got that extra 15 to 20 minutes. Is that the way you think about it for training? And then I want to understand what's in your mind or what you think is going to be in your mind during this 100-mile race.
1: Yeah, well, the yeah, that's definitely what's in my mind during training. It's all sort of mm-hmm. these tiny little incremental things. My favorite thing to talk about is that every morning for the past – I think seven years now, I've gotten up and I have a 12 to 15 minute routine that I do every single morning. That's, you know, yoga and core work and planks and stuff. And it's been tweaked over the years, but it's the first thing I do every single morning. And if you think about that, like 15 minutes a day is nearly two hours a week. There's 52 weeks in a year. That's almost a hundred hours of training in a year that I do yeah. without even thinking about it in the morning. Um, so I think that's, that's how I approach training is like sneaking up on it, <laughs> just kind of tiptoeing yeah, up
0: behind it. Well, that's, yeah, that's also <laughs> a pretty holistic approach, though, too, because all of a sudden, my guess is that um, and we haven't touched on injury history or anything like that. But I would say, given the fact that your modalities are kind of gearing your body up for so many different variables um, relative to load in terms of uh, even stretching through different poses in yoga. Um, when did that start? And did you find that that has, has helped um, keep you injury free compared to you know, colleagues who run?
1: I think so. And I don't know what it is, but I've always just kind of assumed that weightlifting and yoga were kind of things that I wanted to mix into my routine, even back yeah. in my early triathlon days. I think it was just, to be honest, at my college, the spin bikes and the treadmills were in the gym with the rest of the weightlifting stuff. And- yeah. Frankly, often a college gym is pretty packed, so yeah. sometimes everything was taken up, so I'd be like, well, I guess I'm going to lift some weights now, or like, oh, I guess I'm going to stretch over all the mats here. Uh, so I think I just kind of naturally started doing all of those things. And I really loved yoga. I actually got my yoga teacher training certificate uh, three years ago now, so I do some yoga teaching uh, just to kind of mix things up a little bit and uh, and for fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, just south of you, it reminds me of I met a... Um, lady who had started her own yoga training studio called Joga. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's um, She came up with the name Joga being Jock Yoga because she wanted to approach and work with athletes. So, um, yeah, brilliant. Uh, I'll send you some information uh, on her yes. and that program. Uh, it's down in Toronto. She did have a studio there at one point. I don't know if she still kept the studio during COVID with the pandemic or, or anything like that. But um, what I loved about the program was – Rather than static hold, she kept the holds at like good ranges but fairly short term based around the requirements of these athletes' bodies in predominantly US sports, whether it was ice hockey, baseball, basketball, etc. So it was fairly successful with it. So yeah, I mean there's some phenomenal programs out there that you know, it's, it's, it's like anything else. Um, you can look at them as supplemental or you can embrace them as part of a holistic training program. And I think the athletes that do that are more injury resilient uh, over the course of their careers. And it certainly gives you an opportunity to, you know, just get in touch with your body and get in touch with, you know, how you're moving and what you're feeling. Let's move into the mindset that you're going to take into this. Have you got a happy place you go to when the pain of distance kind of hits?
1: I I think I do, yes. Um, so first of all, the race is actually awesome because it's structured in, it's five 20 mile loops, which mm. a lot of people, I say that, and they just look absolutely just like shell shocked. They're like, that sounds terrible. I would never uh, want to do that. I'm like, yeah. that's amazing. I love this so much um, because it's so much more measurable you know, you you get one done, okay, 20% done, you get 40% done, it's, it just feels like much easier to tick off. And you know, when you're in in the middle of it, you know, exactly what's coming, you'll have seen Mm -hmm. everything in the first four or five hours. Yeah. So there's no surprises at the end, there's not going to be like a climb at the end that I'm not expecting to be there. There's going to be a lot of climbing, but I'll know where it is.
0: Exactly. (laughs) So for me,
1: mentally, I actually love that.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So it gives you that opportunity to manage fatigue, know mm-hmm. where to apply speed on certain parts of the track. Like when you're getting into loop four and five, right? This is where it's going to count. It's a knowledge of loops one through three that are going to apply to loop four and five. What's in your ears? Are you listening to anything during the course of a run?
1: oh see this is this is where it's getting really interesting so there's kind of a couple of options one mm. is that uh i will actually have the ability to have a pacer for the last 50 miles and my good love friend it. the one that happened to set that 900 kilometer fkt is actually going don't gonna you be, hate her
0: or do you hate her or love her which one it's love, gonna be a little bit love about, her love right? her
1: so much i'm a little <laughs> mad at her for this i'm not gonna lie um when i realized like when i looked at my training plan and i was like I, you know, I've joked about this on, on my podcast. I'm like, Oh crap. I have a 20 mile run. I have to do on Christmas (laughs) Eve now. And like new year's day, I've got to do like a 50 K training run. Like this is garbage and it's all her fault. (laughs) Um, but really I love her and it's going to be amazing and I'm really excited for it. But, uh, she's going to be with me for the, the last 50 miles, Mm. uh, like assuming I want someone with me at the time. And, uh, if there's one person that will talk your ear off for the entirety of that 50 miles, it's her. So I know I have that if I need it. Um, but then I'm also like very torn between. I'm like, maybe I should just like choose a couple audiobooks that I really want to get through because I'm going to have a lot of time. And, you know, mm. it's not like something where you're like worried the audiobook is going to slow your pace down or really relax you too much. There's no such thing when you're doing 100 miles. It's just like, are you yeah. still putting one foot in front of the other? Okay, you're moving, you're fine. Yeah. Um, so I'll probably have a little bit of everything. I'll have that's you know, awesome. Some playlists. Some books, some podcasts, and then some Karen. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And then uh, my guess is it'll all go away in maybe that last 10 miles, and you'll just uh, probably unplug and, and, and experience the joy across that line.
1: That would be the hope. Yeah. And of course, we'll have, my husband's going to be there, and he'll have our little mini dachshund DW, who I'm sure will <laughs> bark and cry at every single second he, he gets whenever he sees me. So, that'll be love it. very motivating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean and, and just to even having that picture in your mind for the end of that race, I mean that, that's that's enough, right? I mean that, that can be the driver, you know, mm-hmm. to get you there. But well firstly, what date's the event um, that you're running?
1: That one is February twelfth, and hopefully okay. I will be done by early February thirteenth. It's it's one of the weird ones where the fastest men's time is in like the twenty five hour range, and the fastest mm. women's is in like the thirty hour range. So it's not your it's not your speedy hundred miler that's done yeah, in like sixteen yeah. hours, which I actually kind of love too, because it's like oh good, this is not one where you really need to be like stressing over your your mileage or anything like or your pace per mile or anything. You're really just stressing on like are you still moving?
0: Cool. Yeah love it done <laughs> so a great a great if your husband's listening a great valentine's day gift would be like 6 hour massage day spa kind of thing on valentine's day would probably be a good Goodbye.
1: I'm pretty sure Valentine's Day is going to be 20 hours of driving to get back to Ontario. So super right. sexy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you could hire somebody to uh, be in the car and just work, work on those lakes for, that, yeah, for at least 10 of those hours, right? Definitely Incredible. compression
1: boots in the back. Yeah. Like we've got that all figured out.
0: <laughs> Love it. Yeah, no, an absolute must have nowadays. Tell us a little bit about nutrition and planning and even hydration for an event like that. Um, who, is there a program that you follow what's been what's worked for you historically um are you are you loading what are you doing during the race tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah this is this is what i'm i'd say the most focused on right now in my training mm. is every single run i do unless it's under 30 minutes i'm mm. going out with my pack on and actually yep. fueling it Which is not my ideal. I actually am one of those like camel types that would rather just not fuel for anything under two hours, but I'm aware that that's my limiter. So I'm trying to really work on that. Um, I'm a big fan of Tailwind, like hashtag Mm. not sponsored at all, but it's one of my absolute favorite things. The unflavored one is great Mm. because you can have like 800 calories in like a liter and a half pack on your back and just be drinking your calories pretty easily. Um, yeah. so I love that I eat a lot of Snickers bars on the run so there's that we're, we're now kind of trying to figure out how to keep them warm though because in February it's going to be hard. Oh, they'll you be pull freezing them out and
0: cold like, yeah
1: it sucks so much when you like you have a Snickers out you're like oh this is going to be great and you bite into it and you, you like can't really chew it and you're tired so chewing is already really kind of hard and now you're trying yeah. to like gnaw on this frozen you're trying Snickers. to get calories and
0: you're using all those calories to bite through the calories yeah I can see it right <laughs> trying yeah, to like it just, uh... hold it
1: in your mouth to like <laughs> melt it enough to eat while trying to keep running it's not a pretty yeah. it's not a pretty picture um so yeah. between that and a few uh, you know i i'm okay with gels um i mm. like cliff gels just because that's what i have and i've kind of used them for years and then i yeah. think actually karen turned me on to eating oodles of noodles mid-run because it's a mm. super quick like savory yeah, and energy absorption. bomb and yeah. yeah you can just kind of swallow them whole without really worrying too much about chewing so i think uh we'll have a little um our little camp stove set up at the aid station so I can just spoon it up and go real quick.
0: Love it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hyper interesting area for me. My, my wife's actually a professor in nutrition at Arizona state university. And so we kind of met through sports nutrition. Um, she did a lot of work in like the university of Florida football and did a lot of work in around organizations like Gatorade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, cool. But um you mentioned something that's really interesting to me too. I'll use a different term, but the rate-limiting factors for you were, were nutrition, and so you're hyper-focused on that. And we know what you're going to do during the race, but how do you manage your, your weeks? Is it um, that you have a macronutrient kind of process that you're looking at to say is it you know is it more protein-based in a post-run you know to you know rebuild you know muscle tissue? Is it more carbohydrate-based early, which I think would be an expectation? Or do you do something unique with those? Are you more high fat? There's a big trend that way now. And there's so many, it's like religion food, right? I mean, there's so many different uh, arms of, of what works. And I think, you know, one of the best things I ever read and, and a gentleman I talked to was actually the founder of the um, sports supplement company Metrics, uh, Scott Connolly, Dr. Scott Connolly said to me once, he goes, yeah, he goes, he'd like to look at the hereditary of the runners um, that he was working with to understand if they were, you know more equatorial runners that they had. You know they were doing more slow, slow long distance, and they were more carbohydrate based. Whereas the northern and northern hemisphere Icelandic kind of areas were short sprint distance, more protein based, and that was kind of the DNA kind of modeling he was looking at from an evolutionary perspective to understand nutrition. Do you go that far, or do you pull back and say, "You know what? I like pepperoni pizza, and it seems to be working for me." I set a personal best on that pepperoni pizza the night before that race, so that's what I'm going with. Good. Where does it fit for you?
1: Oh well, it's funny you mentioned the pizza night before the night before the race because that is actually my go-to the night before the race. What, what kind of pizza?
0: Um, we need to know what kind of pizza. So what's oh, on that pizza? Man.
1: Honestly, just plain but extra cheese and extra sauce. Like, none of this, like, too much crust BS. All about the cheese. Um, Cheese is phenomenal.
0: (laughs) Cheese is underrated. Mm -hmm. Underrated, probably second only to bacon as an underrated fuel source. Anyway.
1: Exactly, exactly. Talk about that all Um, afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. So the the nutrition thing is is very interesting because I've actually been kind of grappling with this in the past couple of months personally. I'd just gotten mm. some blood work done, and I yeah. there were a couple things that I was like not super impressed about in my blood work, mm. we'll say. Okay. Yeah. Um, And it's one of those things where when you do these endurance sports, a lot of the narrative right now has been around this just like, eat everything, eat all the carbs, mm. eat all the sugar, just like, yeah. get calories in because you're burning so much, which is true yeah. to an extent, but it also yeah. kind of it sort of ignores a lot of other health outcomes as far as just being a, like, healthy, well-rounded human. Right. So... I've lately been really focusing hard on getting in a lot more. I'd say protein has been a, a big, a big push of mine. So instead yeah. of just kind of eating three meals a day, normally I would train in the morning and have my lunch be sort of my post run like meal. Now I'm trying to actually have kind of a, a third or a fourth meal. Sorry. Like, so I have, you know, mm. a protein smoothie or something when I get done with my run and then I have lunch Yeah, um, and trying to kind of actually not cut down on carbs, but cut down on simple carbs that aren't during training or right before right. training right. and trying to actually add in a lot more complex carbs, whether, you know, oatmeal and, and rice and stuff like, or brown rice mm. anyway, and stuff like that. Not not that I'm saying like, oh yes, I've switched from eating pastries to salads. Like that is not the case, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but trying to get in more of those those heartier complex carbs yeah. instead of the the simple
0: carbs, so. One of our former guests on the show, um, Bob Sibahar, he is a triathlete, um, did the Leadville event. I think he's one of the few lead men that exist that did, you know, um, over the course, I think, seven different events over the course of uh, over a month. Uh, that he he registered these events. But um, it got to the point with his nutrition background, he actually started his own foods company and uh, dived into what he called nutrition periodization, which coming from a strength conditioning sports science background made a heck of a lot of sense to me how to load up on certain... You know, micro cycles pre-event um, macro cycles looking at the overall health of the individual athlete and it got to a point where he was actually working with uh, the, U- the University of Denver, the women's gymnastics team and he looked at the girls on that team and looked at what they had access to relative to snacks and he was so disappointed that he made his own snack food line and I just got some of them at home and they are pretty damn good yeah, I'm pretty impressed with what he's been able to pull together but yeah it's one of those areas that takes specialist knowledge and it's, it can be the rate limiting factor for so many athletes, especially an endurance athlete, knowing how to fuel your body and when appropriately, not only during a race, but before a race and for a repair post event. It's critical, absolutely yeah. critical.
1: Yeah, and I think for women, there's also this other layer of mm. we've we've been kind of indoctrinated. I was just talking to a dietitian about this the other day. Yeah. We've, as women, have been indoctrinated into this idea that like 1,500 or 1,800 calories a day is just sort of this default, like, base. This is what yeah. women have, which is absolute crap when you're an endurance athlete crap. or even when you're just like, a human. Um, oh my it's God. a terrible number yeah. that, like, a lot of us learned back in, you know, Twenty yeah. years ago, that was just what what we saw. Yeah. That's what we read. Put, put, and... a
0: liter, put a liter of fuel in your in your gas tank and drive a hundred miles. Good luck. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah.
1: But that's that's what we've been taught. That's what we kind of have internalized. So I will say if I Mm -hmm. try to count calories for a day, I am in so much trouble because my brain Mm. has such a hard time going over that 1800 thing. Like when I see it in my fitness pal, like tipping into like the 3000 calories, I'm automatically just like, Oh no. So I don't count calories is the upshot of that because I know it stresses me out and it, it, you know, gives me these, these weird feelings that I do not appreciate. And I know this is not just me. I've talked to so many women who have, this exact same mindset. And like, hmm. we're in a weird position where a lot of us can look at look at a plate of food and estimate the calories pretty well because yeah. of how we grew up in such a diet culture. We're right. capable of like looking at it and be like, yep, that plate is about uh, 850 calories. So uh, that means I can have like this, this, this. <laughs> So it's trying to get over that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And getting over it, right? I mean, and that's the thing. Even the word diet seems to be a restrictive negative term, whereas really all we're trying to do is is show the end-to-end use of food as fuel. And that was one of the things in working with a lot of athletes, it's getting that crossover from the emotional context of eating into the fuel component for what they need to do as an athlete, men and women, uh, mm-hmm. that I both work with. And women, it was always a challenge because I think there was, you know, to your point, there was those two calorie uh, levels. There was an aesthetic requirement uh, that went along 100%. with that as well. And then, you know, there's a whole battery of differential physiology that female athletes have to deal with relative to men and it's like everything that was designed in nutrition came from men and was passed over the fence you know it's Mm -hmm. like hang on a second it's like we almost need to just again maybe use a vehicle like social media to re-engage that discussion and have it have it stronger so that Female athletes, especially especially the younger athletes know exactly that this is fuel And if I want my body to perform a certain way, this is what enables that
1: Yeah, exactly and you know, that's again, it comes back to what I've written about in the Shred Girls Let me tell you those girls eat a lot of snacks in the books Like I really made it a point to describe meals describe what they're eating and just try to really normalize Like when we ride our bikes a lot, we got to eat a lot to make that work
0: um, and do they stop off a cheese pizza at any point in the book? Though that's what I hundred percent. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Love it. <laughs>
1: like, Actually, that does happen in the, uh, in book three. Yeah.
0: I love it. That is awesome. Fantastic. Can you mention something else? Um, too that is, uh, I'm a big fan of MyFitnessPal, um, that software system on the phone. Having access to that, and if our listeners haven't heard of this, you can, I think there's a free download, I, I don't even know if it's mm-hmm. still free, you can download a free version of it, and basically there are so many entries in there that you can log and look at your foods, and I think the big thing about that is not to take it as a restrictive element, but to understand the end-to-end case of nutrition and try to match that up when your body is feeling really good. Well, what was that week looking like in in, cert, in a certain event? Was it, hey, I was 40% protein all week and boy, do I feel really good on race day if it's once a week, right? And trying to understand that individualization as it applies to a pattern or a plan. So yeah, that software is phenomenal, but it leads me into a question I have for you. Data... Even though that's kind of an analytical um, input on a, on a software, is there anything that you wear that is a wearable technology? And do you balance or do you look at any data um, and and watch your body and what you are feeling? Let's let's put those two things kind of side by side. Which I one wins? Love this. I Which love one this. wins? Feel oh. or data?
1: Oh, feel a hundred percent. I think there's so much value to wearable technology. I think it's amazing. I think we've made such great strides in it. Uh, Stuff like HRV is fascinating. Mm. Stuff like power is is so important. But I worry that sometimes we've outsourced how we feel to this little black box that we hold all the time. <laughs> and we just yeah. like, I know so many people who have wearables that like will wake up feeling great and then they'll look at their phone and it'll say they like had a restless night or like they're right. not recovered or something. And they're like, well, yeah. I guess I'm not recovered. And they're, you're like, but you feel great. Or vice versa, they feel like crap, but the phone yeah. is telling them like, "Nope, you're good. you're fully recovered. Get out there." And they're like, "But I don't feel. Good. I guess I feel good." Yeah. Um, so I think there has to be a balance between actually like letting yourself feel the feels and respecting Mm. them, but then also using the data to make informed decisions. So I really like the idea of double blinding yourself almost like wake up and write down how you feel before you check any of your metrics. Exactly.
0: Right. (laughs) And yeah, I think we've all fallen uh, into that trap to some degree. And we had Melinda Elmore um, Canadian uh, marathon runner and you know, transitioned into an endurance event uh we asked her that same question and it really did come down to feel and i think the more experience you have as an athlete the more that feel is trustworthy and it amazes me how much confidence we often place in wearable technology without understanding even the error coefficients relative to that technology there's so much out there um there's one out there that is a predominant technology. I won't mention it, but uh, um, the NBA did a study on on this tech and found that it was 74% accurate at detecting sleep patterns and only 50% accurate at detecting activity levels. And I was like, "Oh wow, okay. I, I knew it was bad. I didn't think it was that bad, but this is a multi-billion-dollar company that, that's pushing this technology out. So, yeah, I think it's." It's, I, I read a statement at a conference once that I think plays into this, the data informs it doesn't decide. You need to have that as a, yeah, it's like I can have the best barometer in the world and, and have a whole weather station outside my house, but, you know, sometimes opening a window and looking up in the sky is a good indicator, right? Exactly. And then, and, yeah, and how do you feel when you walk out the front door? I mean, it's it's finding those balances, I think, that are absolutely critical.
1: yeah and you see this a lot in cycling Um, my husband's a cycling coach so he often Mm. will have athletes who you know will say that they had the best workout ever they felt amazing like everything was really falling into place they Mm. felt so strong they felt so good and then they look at the power data and they're so disappointed because it doesn't Mm. line up with how they how they thought they did Um, and I mean a there's such a room for error in your power like power meters are not god like they're not omniscient they they aren't perfect um so assuming that that has everything is is just crap well, yeah um,
0: and, and on data too it's a matter of finding we call them often first ordered metrics i mean what is the thing that is the most important for you in this hundred mile race right if we're looking forward to that it's probably going to be okay finishes the first ordered metric i want to make sure i cross that finish line that's number one then the time is probably the second one you know what kind of time did I so i can correlate and compare because knowing you for 45 minutes, I know that this, this is not the last one of those events that you're going to run, right? You're probably going to try to beat your personal time again next year. So it's like, how do you order those metrics? And then how do you put them into perspective, I think is, is more maybe the role of a coach, you know, somebody who was a really good coach can help assemble that psychology so that you could work through it. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, I think it, those are critical parts of the equation.
1: Yeah, 100%. I remember when I first started working with my running coach, I was like, oh, you know, I feel like I could maybe, you know, lose five pounds. And like, should I get a heart rate monitor? Should I do? He was like, no. And also, no, if you don't use the heart (laughs) rate monitor now, like you don't need to get one to start working with me and throw your scale out. That's that's a terrible metric. Like that has nothing to do with how you're running right now. Um, And he was completely right. And I mean, you know, I do play with heart rate data now and now and again, but it's not something that I get super caught up in. And yep. yeah, it's it's just one of those things, power is fantastic, but I, I don't really like stress too much about the numbers anymore.
0: <laughs> so Molly, husband, Dachshund, and friend who's ran 900 miles. Let's put those three to the side. Who else inspires you? Who do you look up to and say, oh wow, I'm impressed.
1: Ooh so many so many people um, actually the person who does fan of first come to mind is uh, celine Yeager she's uh, you might know her as the fit chick for bicycling magazine or the co-author of roar oh, yeah. Um, yeah she uh, hosts the uh, the um, feisty menopause podcast uh, hit play not pause um, she's been writing about cycling for I mean she was writing about cycling years and years and years before I got into it and mm-hmm. you know her her trajectory as a badass athlete and amazing author has been one that I have you know followed And I'm so lucky I get to call her a friend too, and she's yeah one of my my biggest inspirations for who I want to be when I grow up.
0: (laughs) Love it, love it. Tell us a little bit in the short amount of time we've got left. The transition to being an author and host of a podcast, which I want our listeners to um, find out where we can find you on the podcast. But tell me about transitioning to being an author. What was the driver there? How did that come about? Was it just hey, I see a need to inspire uh, women and especially young girls on this journey physically um, to have a sense of physical literacy and what that can do for them personally. What was the inspiration there?
1: Uh, I mean, if you ask my mother, I've wanted to be an author since I was two years old. It never occurred to me I was going to be anything other than a writer. This running, this biking side gig is just this, this other <laughs> thing I happen to do. It's content.
0: That's what it is, right? It's content. Exactly. Before.
1: Exactly. Before I got into cycling, I was in fa- into fashion journalism. I wrote for fashion yeah. magazines. Oh, wow. So this has always been my life. Um, I had my yeah. first book on cyclocross come out in 2013. And I think my goal has been a book a year since then. And I think I'm wow. actually like on that uh, on that track the uh, the shred girls one really just came from a book i'd been playing with when i was probably 20 years old i was writing about this girl who thought she who like was convinced her cousin was a supervillain and she was secretly a superhero and just hadn't found her powers yet um and i wrote it before i got into cycling at all and then i kind of revisited it a few years back and i was like oh this would be really cool if it turned out that her cousin wasn't a superhero she was just or supervillain rather she was just a cyclist and uh You know, this girl learns that you don't really have to have superpowers to, you know, fly through the air on your bike and do super cool stuff. And, you know, of course, because I love a good superhero story, save the day. So
0: Love it. Love (laughs) it. Absolutely love it. Tell us about your podcast. Where can we listen to that? Where can we find you?
1: Yeah, uh, my husband and I co-host the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we talk about sort of all things uh, healthy, adventurous living. Our goal is to really, I mean, very similar to your podcast, we just want people to be really happy, healthy, adventurous individuals who are exploring all different modalities of sport, sort of whatever interests them, whatever excites them, and that they're capable and confident that they can jump into all different kinds of adventures and, and have fun.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Molly, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us um, this afternoon or whenever our listeners are listening to uh, this podcast. And, um, yeah, mate, we'll have to uh, touch base. Um, I'm trying to think whether it's now. It won't be the 12th. I don't want to get in the way. It's probably going to be like, okay, you've got a 20-hour drive back from that, um, from that event. I'm thinking it's going to be maybe the 15th, 16th. We'll check in and see how that recovery's going. Yeah,
1: when I wake up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sleep is going to be huge after that one, no doubt. percent. Lolly, thank you so much, mate. It's been uh, great to meet you. Great to catch up here and just phenomenal work that you're doing. And uh, if we can help you in any way, please reach out.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. This was so much fun.
0: Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Human Kinesome Project podcast. The kinesome is starting to take shape, but team... The game is just beginning.